When you were younger and you had a yearbook, at the end of the year, when you got your yearbook, what did you do right away? It was probably like look up all of the different extracurriculars that you weren't a part of, right? You were very interested in that one extracurricular that you had no clue existed. That's what you did, right? Or maybe like right away you opened it up and you looked for every single picture you were in. You were very curious. How were you portrayed in that yearbook? Now I know we have homeschool kids and I know there's a, quite a few homeschool kids here as well. Your yearbook is non-existent. <laughs> so you might, that, that whole question might fall flat on you, but how about like when you go to a summer camp or you go to Worldview and there's a highlight film at the end what do you do? What makes for a great highlight film? It's probably watching a bunch of strangers do fun activities, right? That's what you're really looking for. A bunch of people that you don't really know and you didn't get along with. Maybe what you really like in a highlight film is a diversity of age groups. And you're really curious on what the other age groups did while you were there. Now, I think it's safe to say what you look for in a highlight film, what really catches your attention and makes it great, is video of yourself doing awesome things, right? That's what you're looking for. We all live kind of an egocentric life. That's one of our main sins that we struggle with. I mean, the, the huge sin is that we are God. Part of that root of that huge sin that, that all other sins develop from is this egocentrism. We want to see ourselves. We look for ourselves. We want everything to be about us. I, I struggle with it too. I have this idea oftentimes that's just ingrained and, and I have to struggle with it that here's me and here's the world. You know, it revolves around me. We all struggle with that. And even when it comes to reading the Bible and worship, we struggle with this idea. And so when we read the Bible, what do we look for? Just like the highlight film. Just like the yearbook. We look for ways that it affects me. I read myself into Scripture. Or how about worship? We want it to be this deeply personal, intimate thing. And yet for the original audience, worship and reading Scripture was a communal thing. And the object of both was always God. It was a communal thing. When they gathered together, they would read the epistles out loud. They would read them as a church, as a community. That's why the epistles so often are addressed to the church at Corinth. To the church at Ephesus. Because it was a communal thing. And the object was always God. It wasn't this individualistic, egocentric thing. God has a bigger story. And we get a small part to play in that story. Oftentimes, we want to emphasize our role in that story because just like the yearbook, just like the highlight video, we want it to be about us. So we want a big part in God's story. But the truth is, we each have a small part in God's story 
And it's always about God. Now, I think this helps us live a life that reflects God's glory. Even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of heartache, to realize that my story really isn't about me, but it's about God and His glory. Well, when I realize that, I can walk through crisis, I can walk through pain in a grace-filled way. And that's what we're going to learn about today as we continue our study in the summer in the Psalms. This is Psalm 105. Turn there with me, if you will. Now, no one, just like the previous psalm, no one was quite sure who wrote Psalm 105, and no one is quite sure of the exact date. But we do know that part of, uh, it is part of David's psalm, or sorry, song in Chronicles 16. Now, the difference, have you ever read Chronicles and Kings? Have you ever noticed that they're very similar? In fact, they tell the same story during the same time frame. Well, the difference between Kings and Chronicles is Kings was written before the exile. And it was written as a rebuke against Israel. This helps frame what Kings is all about. So when you read Kings, read it as though you were the original audience. Put yourself in the original audience's shoes. You're in Israel. You've been rebelling against God. And now there's this story that comes out that details all of your rebellion. That's what Kings is all about. And it's showing them that they deserve the exile. Chronicles is written after the exile. And it highlights all the good stuff. And it's, show, it's written to encourage Israel to come back to Jerusalem. To come back to Jerusalem and live for God. So, so those are the two di- major differences between Kings and Chronicles, the reason why they were written. Now we can see that this is following that David song in Chronicles, and so most theologians think because of that, Psalm 105 was probably written during the exile. We're going to jump a lot of theology off of this, because if Psalm 105 was written during the exile, we have to ask the question, why was it written? And I think it was written to answer the question, why do we praise God? Now, you might be in here, and you might be fairly new to the church, and you might think exile. That's a pretty churchy word. You know, I've never heard that term a whole lot before I came to church. So, what is the exile? We'll have to do a quick history lesson, which is good, because Psalm 105 is going to give us a history lesson as well. But the history lesson begins with a guy named Abraham. Abraham is found in Genesis 12. And God calls Abraham out. He's living in Mesopotamia. God calls him out and he says, Hey, Abraham, it's time for you to move. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make this huge nation out of you. And through this nation, I'm going to give you some land. And I'm going to bless you. And through you, the rest of the world will be blessed. This is what is called a unilateral covenant. Meaning God gives it to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make this thing happen. It doesn't matter how great you are. It doesn't matter how horrible you are. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless the entire world through you. So he calls Abraham out. And he calls him to this land called where the Canaanites live. The land of Canaan. And he has to sojourn there. Now during his sojourn there, he runs into all kinds of problems. He's starting to question God. Sarah, his wife, goes beyond childbearing years. And he still doesn't have a kid. And he's like, hey God, what's up? 
You said you were going to do this. You said you were going to make a great nation out of me. What's up with this? There's no child. There's a lot more to the story, and I'm just going to give you some bare highlights. But God eventually gives them a child named Isaac. But no great nation yet. But he re-ups the promise to Isaac. Isaac has two children, Esau and Jacob. He gives the promise again to Jacob. Jacob has 12 kids. Those are 12 sons. Those are the 12 tribes of Israel. We know Joseph is the most famous. He, goes to, he gets sold into slavery. He goes to Egypt. There's a great famine. All of his brothers end up in Egypt with him. Through circumstances, he's only second to Pharaoh during that time. And then the Israelites are enslaved. For 400 years, they're enslaved. Then God raises up Moses. Moses leads the Exodus. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And finally, they get to go take on the promised land. They get into the promised land. They develop a nation. And they rebel against God. Because of that rebellion, God raises up Babylon. Babylon comes and they conquer Israel. And they drag them back to Babylon. And there they are, captors of a foreign nation. They'll be captors for 70 years. That's the exile period. When we say the term, or when we use the term exile, that's what we're referring to. The 70 years that they're under captivity. All right, so now we've got the history lesson under our belt, at least part of it. We're going to get more in this psalm. So hopefully you're there already, Psalm 105. And by the way, I do like to read the entire psalm because I think it gives us the context. So we'll all read the whole thing, even though this one's a little bit on the long side. We'll still read it. I like the context that we're going to get with it. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of his wondrous works. Glory in his name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they, are f- were, sorry, when they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, He allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine in the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said come to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent sent and released him. 
The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them, and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hell for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the firstfruits of all their strength. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there, were, there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail, and gave them bread and from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them lands of the nations. And they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. All right, let's jump on in. So it begins with, oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. So this first line gives us this call to worship. The rest of the psalm is going to be a reason why. Think about it. In exile, they feel like God is far off. Why should we worship God? He raised up Babylon to bring us out out into captivity. Why on earth would I be worshiping Him right now? There's a call to worship, and there is a reason why. But before he gives the reason, he's going to give us a couple different ways on how to worship. So, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wonderful works. So this is a call not just to praise quietly by yourself. This isn't just a personal reflection or personal time of worship, but this is a communal worship. This isn't just opening your yearbook and looking for you or looking at the highlight and looking for yourself. This is a communal thing they're saying. In our individualistic society, we make worship about ourselves. And here is a call that is something greater than ourselves. And it's a call actually for a different audience. Oftentimes we talk about worship and make God our only audience. And I think it's important that we make a distinction. God is always the object of worship. So whenever we're worshiping, God is the object. But there are several different audiences that we have when we worship. Sometimes that audience is God. And we worship God, and He's the audience, and it's all about Him and our relationship with Him. There are other times we see that there is an audience that is beyond God. And oftentimes that audience is made up of either believers or non-believers. So here we have, 
make known his deeds among the peoples. The peoples here is a term that would, that would mean nations. So it is all people other than Jews. For the Jew, there were Jews and there were Gentiles. This is a call to make his works known among all nations. It's another way of saying non-believers. Have you ever thought that the audience that watches us worship sometimes can be non-believers? God calls us to worship Him as the object, but the audience can sometimes be non-believers because it's a way to proclaim His glory. It's an evangelistic event when we worship God and non-believers look, look in. When we have authentic worship, now, there can be a lot of different methodologies within that worship. It doesn't have to be what's called attractional worship, where you know, we tailor-make it for non-believers to look in. Sometimes it can be just simple worship. Stripped down with no instruments, as long as it is a heartfelt worship. And it begins to make people question, what on earth is real here? Could their hearts be really changed because God is changing them? So that's one of the audiences. Another audience is believers. Tell of his wonderful work, sing to him, sing praises to him, but also to each other. Because when we gather together and some of us are walking through a crisis, when some of us are walking through pain and heartache, and we gather together and we remind each other of how great God is, it helps us to continue our walk. It spurs each other on. When you're going through pain and you show up and you are gathered together with other believers that tell you and remind you of how good God can be, it can help you to continue your walk with Him. So the object is always God. But sometimes the audience is non-believers. Sometimes the audience is believers. Sometimes the audience is God. So we see that, that there is a call to worship God for several audiences. Glory his, in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. The word here for seek is darosh, and it means to search for. For they are in exile. Their original audience was in exile. And for, uh, for many of them, God felt far away. You know, if you think about Israel, for, for generations, they had the temple. And they had God's Shekinah glory filling that temple. And now here they are. They're not even in Jerusalem anymore. They're not even close to the temple. And not only that, the temple has been destroyed. God's Shekinah glory left the temple. The temple was destroyed. Now they're off in some foreign land where these people worship foreign gods. And to them, God felt light years away. But there's this call that even though He feels away, to search for Him, to seek Him out. And what happens when we seek Him out? He gives us strength and He gives us joy. Every single one of us will go through times in our life where God feels distant. 
Some of us will have longer periods. Some of us will have shorter periods. But every single one of us will feel like God is distant. And the command here for us is to search for Him. Even when He feels distant, search for Him. And when you search for Him, He will give you strength and He will give you joy. Remember the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles and the judgments He has uttered. So far, we've seen different ways to worship God. We've seen give thanks to Him. We've seen sing, seek, tell, and remember. Worshiping isn't always just about singing. There are other ways we can worship God. We can worship Him through seeking Him. We can worship Him through remembering Him and through telling others about Him. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen one. So he uses these specific names to connect them to the promise. God made Abraham a promise. It was that unilateral covenant that God was going to do something and he was going to be faithful. And he's connecting them saying, you are going to receive part of the promise. Don't give up yet. This was to encourage those exiles. So now he's going to give them a history lesson to show them that although things can seem dark, although things can seem grim, although God can seem far off, time and time again, God proves his faithfulness. So 7 through 42 are the history lessons. He starts off with, he is the Lord our God, his judgments are in all the earth. And this is just simply stating that He's the Creator and the ultimate authority. History begins with Him at creation. And not only is He the authority with, uh, uh, and the Creator, but He is also uh, the judge. So He created this world with principles, with moral principles and physical laws. And no matter how much you fight against those moral principles, they will always win out. So for example, the, just like the physical laws, if, it doesn't matter how much I say I don't trust in gravity. I could stand on a rooftop and say, I don't believe gravity and I could jump. But we all know the result, a broken leg, if I'm lucky. The moral principles are the same. You can say all you want that you don't believe that these moral principles exist. And yet the consequences of jumping off the roof will still take effect. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. A thousand generations is just a poetic way of saying forever. So he's saying right here that God made this covenant with Abraham and it's going to last forever. You can trust on it. Someone, you know, uh, someone might say you could take it to the bank. That might be one of the ways we put it. The whole point is you can trust it. God made a covenant, trust the covenant. We'll continue with the, way, with the ways he's demonstrated you could trust him. The covenant that he made with Abraham. So going all the way back to Genesis 12, we've already talked about this covenant. It's a unilateral covenant. God told him if you, or there's no if, God told him, I am going to, one, give you land, two, bless you, three, make you a blessing to all nations. He swore his sworn promise to Isaac. So Isaac was the confirmation of that covenant. And God waited for just the right time where, Mo, where Abraham couldn't take credit. You know, if he, she was still childbearing years, 
maybe Abraham could take credit. But God waited, and he waited, and he waited so that Abraham couldn't take credit. I think when we wait, God gets more glory. When we wait and we are patient on God, but too often we think that we need to help God, right? Like, God, you just don't have things quite figured out. He's not working on our timeline, and so we think we need to be the help for God. That happened with Abraham and Sarah. She was getting too old. She says, hey, look, God's not fulfilling his promise. Why don't you take my maidservant? Then we'll have offspring. Oftentimes, when we think we need to help God, we're just going to make situations worse. We need to be able to wait on God and work on his timeline. Knowing the bigger story helps us to have patience. Knowing that our story is just a small part of God's bigger story helps us have patience. So he continues on. Which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute. This is a reference to Genesis 28, where God simply reaffirms this covenant with Jacob. To Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. Now remember, there's three parts of the promise, that they will get the land, that they will be blessed, and they will be a blessing. There is an emphasis here about the land, and that's specifically for the exiles, because they've been taken from the land. So this is an encouragement to the exiles saying, hey, don't give up hope. God will return us to the land. That's simply what this is doing. 12 through 15 is a reference to Genesis 34, uh, when they were few in number. So if you remember, they're still sojourners. They don't have a nation yet. So they're going around the land of Canaan, and they haven't quite settled down, but they need to, at least they think, they need to be friends with the neighboring cities. Because if they're friends, the neighboring cities won't kill them all. So they're few in number, they need to be friends, they're still sojourning, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people. He allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their behalf, saying, touch not my anointed ones, do, or, do my prophets no harm. So if you remember the story out of Genesis 34, what happens is they come and they settle down in the land of Shechem. Shechem was a city, they had more people than they did, and they make, Jacob makes an agreement with the king of Shechem. He says, hey, Let's get, to get along together. Let's, let's just get along. The people of Shechem make the agreement. They say, sure, that sounds like a great idea. Let's get along. Let's throw a party to celebrate this. The results of the party is Jacob's daughter is raped. Now, Jacob's scared. He doesn't want any retaliation on him. He doesn't want them to be destroyed, so he does nothing. And while he does nothing, his sons take the law into their own hand. They make an agreement with the people of Shechem. They say, hey, uh, it is our law, it is our custom that everyone who wants to marry our women gets circumcised. So why don't you guys go get circumcised and then we'll just give you our, our ladies. And while they're recovering from their circumcision, every single one of the men get killed by Jacob's sons. Now they come back and Jacob says, what have you done? We will surely be destroyed. So Jacob is questioning God's faithfulness. And this is a reminder here that even though Jacob questioned God's faithfulness, God made a promise. 
He made a promise to Abraham. And even though Jacob's sons messed up, and even though Jacob was being spineless here, God was going to stay true to his promise. And so he doesn't let any of the neighboring cities touch Jacob and his sons. 16 through 22, or 25 really, gets us all the way through the story of Joseph. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had, um, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. So, uh, once again, we see God using man's failure to serve his promise, to fulfill his promise. God didn't make his brothers sell him. God didn't make his brothers do this evil thing that they did. And yet, God used it for his glory and for their good. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever pain you're going through, how someone has hurt us, we've all been sinned against, we have all been hurt in some way. And that person that hurt you, they meant it for evil. But God can turn it to good. We have to trust God with our pain. We have to trust God with our struggle. So when you're in the struggle, when you're in the midst of the pain, reflect on God and Joseph. Reflect on this small story that Joseph gets to play in God's larger story about how God is faithful and how God can turn evil into good. In fact, Genesis 50-20 is one of those favorite quoted verses. His brothers, after all of this, his brothers come to him and they're scared because Jacob's dead and they think that the only reason Joseph hasn't killed them is because of Jacob. And Joseph's reply is, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We can trust God when people are sinning against us. It's hard. It's so difficult because so often we're in the midst of it and we can't see the bigger plan. Think about what, what Joseph goes through. His feet were hurt in fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. So, so many times we talk about like the good parts of the story that we forget he served time in prison. He was, a, he was sold into slavery. He served time in prison. And you've got to think, well, he's in prison with his neck in irons, that he's got to be saying, God... Are you there? God, do you hear me? God, do you see the pain I'm going through? God, how is this going to work out for your glory and my good? And yet we get to see the end of the story. You don't get to see the end of your story yet. And there are times even in this life, where it doesn't feel like the story will end out well. I think about so many of the apostles that were killed. 
James, the brother of John, was actually the first apostle that was recorded being killed. Or how about Stephen, who stoned for for spreading the good news, for spreading the gospel. He's killed. And while he's being killed brutally, as the stones are pummeling him, he yells out, God, forgive them. He saw that his story was just a small part of God's greater story. So even in this life, we, do, we can't be guaranteed that it's going to end, that it's going to be a happy ending. The missionaries that Danny mentioned that were killed, they weren't guaranteed a happy ending in this life. But we are guaranteed a bigger ending in eternity. And we need to be eternally focused in order to live this life full of grace. So his feet were put in uh, a collar of iron. Sorry, his feet were uh, hurt in fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The word tested here is saraif, and it means to be refined or to remove impurities. So every trial in your life, God can use to mature and to grow you. So often we try to avoid trials, we try to avoid pain, and yet it is the very trial and the very pain that God will use to grow you and mature you in His holiness. I reference it often, but I'll reference it again. The book, The Gift of Pain, is such a great analogy to this. In The Gift of Pain, he works with, the doctor works with leper colonies. And what he found is that uh, leprosy isn't actually a skin disease. Leprosy is a nervous system disease. And so he was dealing with all these people that couldn't feel. And because they couldn't feel, they, couldn't, they, they wouldn't let go of a hot cup. So, you know, they'd touch the cup, they'd get burned, and yet they'd still hold on to it because they couldn't feel the pain. Or they'd turn on the hot water in the shower and it would be scolding them and they couldn't even tell. One of the most disgusting stories is that they were starting to figure out how to manage this, right? And, and they were like checking themselves all the time for cuts or burns. But still people in India were losing fingers. These leprosy patients were losing fingers and they couldn't understand why. But at night, all of a sudden, a finger would be gone. And so they decide one night, somebody's going to hide kind of up in the ceiling in a a corner, and they're just going to watch the leprosy patient and see what happens. And because the leprosy patient couldn't feel, he didn't realize when a rat crawled up onto him and ate his finger. Well, they now discovered why leprosy patients were losing fingers. There's a gift to our pain. It helps us understand when something is wrong. Emotional and spiritual pain have the same thing. When you're experiencing emotional and spiritual pain, so often what we want to do is run from it and not confront it. But that pain you're experiencing is God's megaphone shouting to you that something is wrong. And he's going to grow you through that pain. So he took this pain that Joseph was experiencing and he refined him. He drew out the impurities. 
And he made him the man that he needed him to be so that he could lead during this famine and he would bring Israel to Egypt. He goes on to express how he becomes uh, second in all of Egypt only to Pharaoh. We have to understand that at this time, Egypt is the most powerful nation in the world. So Joseph becomes the second most powerful person in the world. And not only that, but during, then he causes a famine that brings Israel to Egypt, and then he blesses Israel so much that they begin to grow, and they actually outnumber the Egyptians. And it's that time when he turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. And so they enslave them. Now, this... Uh, God told Abraham in Genesis 15 that he was actually going to do this. And he says that your people, I'm going to grow a nation out of you, your nation will actually be enslaved. And the reason why I'm doing this is because they can't have the land yet. The Amorites who were living in that land were wicked people, but God was giving them time to repent. Think about that for a second. When you read about the conquest, when you think about uh, Joshua, so many people talk about how evil God is during that time because he wipes out this land, these people groups. But just a second, he gave them 400 years to repent. Man, that's a patient God. How long do you give someone to repent? How long are, do you give someone before you're like, hey, you're out of here, I'm cutting you out of my life forever? I can guarantee you it's not 400 years. God gave him 400 years to repent. That's a patient God. 26 through 38 recalls the plagues and the Exodus account. And this reminds the audience that though this seems bad, you might even feel like God has forgotten you. There were entire generations that were born and died in slavery in Egypt. But when the timing was right, God delivered on his promise. God has a plan and a purpose, and he wastes nothing. Even when all seems hopeless, God can redeem any situation. And that's the point of 26 through 38. 37 and 38, then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed for dread had fallen upon it. God got the job done. He displayed his glory. Think about the most powerful nation in the world was defeated by a bunch of slaves. The only explanation was God. When we wait on God, he displays his glory. 39 through 42 is a reference to the wilderness wanderings. During the wandering in the wilderness, it, and it's important for us to remember that they wandered in the wilderness because they were unfaithful. It was like almost immediately they turned their backs on God. And yet, during this whole time, he still takes care of them. They're under discipline because of their rebellion, and yet when they need food, what does he do? He gives them quell. When they need bread, he gives them bread from heaven. When they're thirsty, he gives them water from a rock. He covers them with a cloud by day and gives them a light by night. And he sums it up in verse 42, for he remembered his holy promise 
and Abraham his servant. Though they were unfaithful, he remained faithful to his promise. God is faithful to his promise. You can count on it. The people in exile were reminded you could count on God. And then verse 43, he gives us our response. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. God is faithful. What is our response to his faithfulness? It should be praise and keeping his statutes. Living according to his word. Regardless of our circumstances. Regardless of how bad things might be. We can still praise God and live out his word for us. Recognizing that God has a big story. And in fact, all of our small stories are just part of God's larger story. And when we remember that this life isn't about me, but about God, it helps me live in God's grace during the struggles, during the difficulties, during the times when it feels like God is far off. I can still live for Him. Dear Lord, we thank You so much that even when we are faithless, You remain faithful that you have proven yourself time and time again, that you are true to your promise, you are true to your word, and that you deliver. We pray that you would help us to reflect on this in times of crisis, in times of struggle, in times when it feels like you are distant and we can't feel or hear you at all. Help us to remember that our life is really just a small part in your big story. That we may live it out to its fullest. In your name we pray. Amen.